Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. From Autosport.com and Autosport Magazine, I'm Kevin Turner, and this is the Autosport Podcast. Well, it's that time of year again. We've done it every year since 2002. It's the top 50 drivers of the year throughout motorsport. It always causes controversy, both in the autosport office and in the wider motorsport world. Um, but we're going to talk about today that list, which you can find on autosport.com on the 21st of December and also Autosport Magazine. It's our cover feature uh, for the Christmas double issue. So I'll introduce the guests first before we get cracking on. Now, first guest is our is our plus and engineering editor, but the reason he's here is because he had the job of actually coordinating the top fifty, which is no mean feat. So, uh, welcome, James Newbold. Have you have you recovered from coordinating the list yet? Arguably not. It's one of those jobs where every year you think, oh, it's actually not that much work, but then yeah, you forget all the toing and froing that occurs. So yeah, it's my job to sort of start the list off, if you like. Um, and then invariably it gets added to and tweaked and suggested um, that it's total rubbish and you need to throw it in the bin and then recycle it and start again. So, uh, yeah, it's quite a long, laborious process, but we like it because it gives people a bit of love that we, we completely appreciate that people are coming to this from different angles, whether they're a fan of touring cars or IndyCar or um, sports cars, whatever that may be. And hopefully it just shines a light on people outside their orbit and the reasons why we think they've done a mega job this year. Absolutely, yeah, we try and spread the joy. And probably the person with the hardest job is my next guest because sports car and endurance racing, GT racing with multiple drivers in the same car means that you have to get really deep dive on these things with stint lengths and all that sort of thing, average lap times, and it's it's really quite a work. So welcome, uh, Gary Watkins. Gary, how did you find – because sports car racing, there were a lot more candidates this year, weren't there, than there have been recently because uh, because of LMDH and LMH coming on stream in both IMSA and the World Endurance Championship. Well, exactly. And uh, readers uh, uh, might have remembered that in the last few years, that in uh, our our top 10 in the sports car review of the, the World Endurance Championship review became a top five for hypercar 
uh, we did a top five for GTE Pro. And the thinking there was, well, we had so few cars in hypercar that uh, we couldn't really justify a top 10, especially if it was packed out with Toyota drivers. Now, of course, we've had Ferrari come in and, you know, all the all the other makes uh, in into the WEC. So we can justify having a top 10 and we don't have GTE Pro anymore. So uh, obviously, so that disappeared. But uh, yeah, I'd like to thank James for his hard work. But I'd also like everyone to remember that I'm in the paddock before most people because I'll be at Daytona uh, in January. Or most people, by the time they get into the paddock of their respective series, it will be March time and people will have forgotten about the uh, top 50. But I'm the one who gets it in the neck from drivers who aren't in there or think they should be higher uh, because uh, memory, by the time they've only got a month to forget about it, and they won't have forgotten about it. So, uh, so yeah, so I'm the one who probably gets most pain. Yeah, but you and Tom Howard, our rally correspondent as well, because obviously Monty also kicks off yes, in January, of doesn't it? So I guess you two are probably the ones that get it. Uh, our third uh, third guest who has to be across all of this, uh, so that's why he was a, an integral part of um, when when we had all our feedback. Me, James, and Hayden Cobb at allsport.com editor sat down and went through and went, oh, that's a good point. Oh, no. And we had we had quite a long discussion moving people around. So, Hayden, did you uh, did, did, are you happy with the list we've ended up with? Oh, is anyone ever happy with the list we've ended up with? Well, no, that's that's the one thing we've definitely said previous years. If, as long as nobody's happy with this list, then we've done a good job. <laughs> and I think, yeah, to, to echo uh, what uh, James and Gary have said before is sort of trying to organise it and be sensible on that. And then I come in and try and disrupt it a little bit because there needs to yeah, there needs to obviously be other ideas other voices come through uh and i think normally i'm the one that causes problems so i apologize already to to everyone that's caused for that no it's called due diligence that's fine i mean just to give everyone a quick idea we won't go into it too much there is actually an article going up on allsport.com to explain the process but basically everyone does their their top 10 drives from their respective championships and we have to stick within those unless of course a driver does more than one major series or or, or major events Uh, and then we sort of try and rate the championships against each other how the performances are within those so did someone dominate a weak championship did someone just come out on top in a much stronger one and we have to weight those against each other uh, and then, of course, we also try and try and spread the joy uh, across different series. So we often have a few touring car champions that are perhaps you know national champions a little bit further down the list, so they get a bit of a bit of coverage uh, as well. So it's it's not like we're going to just pack it out with the twenty F one drives and work from there. That's not how it works. Um, but. And they're uh, not the best twenty drivers in the world. I should point out. No, no, I don't. I, I think probably the the, the top ten F one drivers would have a fair a fair shout. Uh, on balance but I think after that you certainly there are a lot of we've said before haven't we in other podcasts there are so many professionals out there a very high level in lots of different championships whether it's whether it's WEC whether it's Formula E whether it's rallying obviously a completely different branch you know, a lot of rally fans will say well they've got the hardest job of anyone never mind F1 so um, yeah we try and we try and spread the joy a little bit um, so to, now I'm not going to start at the, at the end and, and, and work in either direction because we're here all day but fortunately for us um, Red Bull provided both the number one and number 50 choices this year. Max Verstappen, I think, would surprise no one as number one. We'll, I mean, the F1 podcast, season review podcast, will cover his uh, season in a bit more depth. So, yeah, Max, a uh, uh, record-breaking, you know, won the championship with six Grand Prix to go and all the rest of it. Uh, but at number 50, Sergio Perez. Now, 
So having Perez at 50 is controversial. Some people would say he should be much higher. He did win two Grand Prix and was second in the World Championship. And some would say he shouldn't be there at all because he, his teammate did win rather more than that, 19 races, in fact. So, Gary, where do you reckon? Do you think we should have had him at 50 or should he not be there at all? Or should he be higher? Definitely not higher. Potentially not in the list. But putting him at, putting him at 50 draws attention to the chasm that you talk about, doesn't it? You know, blown away by his teammate. Yes, he's a Grand Prix winner. And has a Grand Prix winner ever been so low in the top 50? Probably not. But yeah, that that the golf in per- performance and speed and racecraft between the two of them means that he can't be, shouldn't be any higher. Putting him number 50, yes, it's a bit cheeky, but 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 we're making a point, aren't we? And it's a it's a talking point. So uh, I some people were were turning their nose up. Ah, oh, he shouldn't be at fifty, or he should be at forty two. No, fifty was the perfect place for uh, for Sergio. Sorry, mate. I'm with Gary on that one. Hayden, what do you uh, what do you reckon? I think I think putting him at fifty so that we can talk about him without hopefully upsetting too many GT and sports car and Formula E drivers that could have taken that place uh, is probably about right. Yeah, that was it. It was sort of uh, to underline the, the the gap, like you say, between Max and and Sergio this this year. Like, and that's a very good point. And and I'd be intrigued. We'll have to look through the archive to say that how how low a Grand Prix uh, winner in a year has uh, staged in the top fifty before, because this has got to be well, <laughs> it has to be the lowest, given it is the the bottom position. But I doubt there's been an equal to it. But it, yeah, it's I do have a little bit of sympathy for Perez in terms of. Let's be honest, Max Stappen has put together one of the all-time great F1 campaigns that would never be sort of matched by but any other driver, it like really. And and granted Perez, yes, he did he did underperform in that car and should have won a, well, a few more races but also been on the podium in plenty others uh and as you say the the F1 top 10 will go delve into great more detail of how's and the why's of, of how that came about, but he did win two two Grand Prix in Baku in particular uh he he put in a, a fantastic uh race weekend throughout that the entire thing and and at the point you thought well blimey maybe he can muster a title chance and obviously as things have played out that's not the case but he did start on a couple of occasions but yeah that's that's probably has given him enough uh points in the bank as the season's gone on to to keep his place in the top 50, but by his fingernails. Going back uh, to the to this point, the sort of the gulf or the gap between two teammates, I remember in this very podcast a few years ago, uh, us talking about uh, Hamilton, who was number one, and Bottas, who I think was number 11. Uh, and, you know, Hamilton blew Bottas away. And I was saying, well, how can how can Bottas be number eleven? It might not have been a number eleven, but it was around that uh, around that uh, number. Uh, and I was just saying he should be much much lower. So I think I think we've we've got it pretty pretty spot on actually. Yeah, just to give people the idea that Perez is about as far off Verstappen as Logan Sargent was from uh, Alex Albon and Lance Stroll was from Fernando Alonso. And I, I think that I've toyed with the idea of doing a separate list of weakest F1 championship runner-up uh, list. I probably won't do that, but I've, I've thought about it. And I reckon it's probably up there with Ricardo Patrese in 92 in terms of how far off he was, Nigel Mansell. Um, but but James, you're you're even more hardline than us, aren't you? You don't, you don't think he's even been there at all. Yeah, I kind of feel like there are other drivers in the world of motorsport that 
will probably feel hard done by to not be included in in this. Um, the other factor I think that we should maybe consider with Formula One is the season is a lot longer than a lot of other, well, obviously NASCAR kind of trumps everything in, in that respect. You've got a lot of chances to rescue your season as um, this year's champion did. But I think, you know, if you look at, you know, an, an average of, oh, a fantastic performance in Baku with a lot of other performances that were very substandard and there were a lot of talks about him potentially even being dropped this year. Um, how, how much does that bring the average down sort of thing so yeah I, I i came at it from the perspective that he's he's quite fortunate to be in in the fifth year at all really had he won his races later in the year do you think we would have put him a lot higher and james wouldn't be saying he shouldn't be in the uh it's that recency uh, bias yeah it's a bit like the oscars isn't it don't don't release a film uh early in the year or you know you release a film so it's got a bit of a hype uh, as the Oscars approach, don't you? So you, so you're, so you're fresh in people's memories. But, but for <laughs> the me, only thing I would say on Perez is of those two wins, one of them was a bit of a gift, wasn't it? Because Jeddah Verstappen had his problem in qualifying, um, and so it was sort of a win by default. Really, he only just had to stay ahead of Alonso um, to win that one. So. Yeah, I think there are other drivers that had more standout moments than than Perez did in a car that he should have had far more standout moments in. But there we go. Well, we don't want to labour too much on the F1 side of things because we're, there's a separate F1 top 10 for that. But I will run through the, the F1 drivers that are in the list. So obviously first uh, is Max Verstappen. I think that's a no-brainer, honestly. Third on the list uh, and second of F1 was Lando Norris. Fernando Alonso is in fifth. Lewis Hamilton in sixth. Alex Albon in 10th, Charles Leclerc and Carlos Sainz together in 14th and 15th, which I think is quite an interesting combination. I think they had to be close together. George Russell at 21st, Oscar Piastri uh, with his sensational rookie season at 26th, Nico Hülkenberg, who was a bit of a star in qualifying in the Haas, but never got a chance in the races, did he? Because it ate its tyres in 44. And then, of course, uh, Perez, as we talked about, at 50. So, guys, is there, is there anyone, before we uh, move on from F1, is there anyone in that list you think's the the wrong way round? Uh, I'm, I'm pretty comfortable with it, honestly, but anyone that you think, oh, I should, should be higher or lower? Could we justify putting Alonso higher? Well, I guess that comes back to another point that when we were putting the list together of the difficulty of this year, there was few and far between candidates to be in second place. Alonso was one of those names that was suggested or, or rather uh, argued against for being the second place driver overall in the top 50, as as was Norris um, and a few others that we're going to in a minute. And you could say that. I, th- I think Norris, in terms of uh, producing the results that he did, particularly when the upgrades came to that McLaren, he really like starred, um, and you could say they, yeah, Norris and Alonso very much had the the opposite ends of the seasons, and they they slid past each other by mid season with car development and and how their performances laid out. But I, I'm I'm quite content with the top ten of the F1 drivers in terms of how they've formed up. I mean, I just thought it was it was a joy to watch Alonso driving, or let's say racing. You know, he was just it was just brilliant to watch at times, wasn't it? And and it was he was clearly enjoying it as well. Um so well, yeah. In the F one season review we, we basically said, you know, is this the driver that saved F one twenty twenty three? I think Alonso getting those podiums and being up at the front was a, a breath of fresh air in the first part of the year. I think there were a few races where he just you know, he wasn't really 
on the boil. Uh, Singapore was a was a bit of a stinker, for example. I think Norris was probably just uh, just a bit more of a consistent performer. The other thing, of course, with Alonso is, you know, he's got a teammate like you know that Alonso should beat Lance Stroll every day of the week, really. Whereas Norris has got, yeah, we already know that Piastri is going to be the next. Yeah, you know, he's one of the next guys. So I think he had a tougher gig there. So I'm kind of happy with them that we're on. But I did tot up. Uh, the scores for all of the top 50s since 2002. I did this a couple of years ago, but I've updated it because I wanted to see if uh, see, see who number one was. Alonso has just held on after 22 years or whatever it is from Hamilton by four points. Alonso's on 894. If you do 50 points for a win and one point for 50th, etc. He's, uh, he's on 894, and Lewis Hamilton's on 890, and the two of them are miles ahead of everyone else. Yeah, who, who is third out of interest? Third? Well, yeah. third is a driver that is on our list. This uh, It's a non-F1 driver. He's in third, and he is in this list. So perhaps this is a good way to move on to our non-F1, uh, our top non-F1 drivers. So in the all-time list, let's say we've been doing it since 2002, Scott Dixon has now moved into a clear third place. And bearing in mind that the people behind him are Sebastian Vettel, Sebastian Loeb and Sebastian Ogier, who are unlike Oh, and Jensen Barton, Kimi Raikkonen, who are all unlikely to score high points again in our top 50. He's a clear third for, well, I'd say he's a clear third until Max Verstappen arrives. Verstappen, by the way, has just made it into the top 10. He's in 10th at the moment, and he'll overtake Mark Webber. Uh, next year, unless something absolutely ridiculous happens. So, yeah, so... Uh, Scott Dixon, he's 18th in our list this year, uh, but he was absolutely thumped by his teammate, which is why, I guess, the leading non-F1 driver, we wanted to put someone between the top two F1 drivers because the chasm between Verstappen and the rest was so big. So, uh, IndyCar's Alex Palou is number two. So, James, are you happy with an IndyCar driver at two? Because some people would say that's too high. I am, actually. And, you know, I think... In his explanation, in his entry for the top 50, Joey Barnes hits it spot on in saying that, well, across the spectrum of, you know, motorsport, there are few champions that could claim such supremacy over the field in 2023 as Alex Palou did. I mean, clearly he had a bit of, you know, messy off-track situations, but, you know, every single race... He was inside the top 10. And in IndyCar, when you've regularly got 27, 28 cars in the field, that's that's staggering. And I mean, he had a, a run of wins in the middle of the season that, you know, pretty well made it appear that anyone else winning the title would be a, a real stretch. Um, Dixon, as we mentioned, he sort of came back into it and ended up finishing second in the points via a, a late run of you know, Dixon-like, you could perhaps say, victories from improbable positions where he, you know, stretched fuel mileage or stretched tyres after um, particularly an, an early setback on the Indianapolis road course. That was one that people were thinking, how on earth has he won that race? It, it must, only Scott Dixon can pull out a, a result like that. But it came far too late in the season to to halt Pelot, who, you know, he had pole for the Indy 500 I think he did he was actually pretty unlucky in the race he w- was sideswiped there by Renus Fike coming out of his pit box and sort of caused some damage that you know it looked like for a moment that was race over but he still charged back to finish fourth so um, you know Pelot's been sort of criticised in the past for not winning many races on ovals but actually he could very well have won 
um, Indy this year and, you know, the, the finish to the Indy 500 this year is a, a topic for a whole other podcast um, as Joseph Newgarden beat Marcus Ericsson in an unprecedented one lap restart. Um, we've actually got Newgarden in our list as number two on the IndyCar roster. He's in 13th in the top 50. And that's despite his sort of um, end of season slump as he sort of fell away from being Pelo's closest title challenger to actually dropping down to fifth in the final point standings. But he was very strong all year on on ovals was was Newgarden and, and um, won both races at Iowa. So um, a, a strong campaign from him. But as we've pointed out, the gulf between him and you know the the, the and Dixon and the top performer this year in IndyCar, Palo, was was significant. And perhaps you could only point to, you know, Formula One and maybe World Rallycross as other categories where the number one performer was such a, a clear cut above the rest. So maybe the BTCC too. Are we arguing against ourselves here? As it was saying, you know, Dixon is in this list and relatively high up, uh, even though there was this this gulf between between them. Well, I think with Dixon, you can point to that magic moments factor, can't you? Mm. Where, you know, for example, in previous years, Alessandro Pierguidi made the top 50 for his heroics in the Spa 24 hours with that, you know, amazing pass around the outside at Blanchemont to win the race. Uh, and, you know, Dixon in, in winning those races on, on fuel strategy, at, um, it, it's called St. Louis, but it will always be the gateway oval to me. Um, and the Indianapolis road course, those wins were, were, you know, truly stunning. And then um, Charles Bradley and Joey Barnes's top 10 best IndyCar drives of the season, both of them were Dixon's. So I think you can look at, you know, he's got that standout factor that even though in the overall standings, he, he took a while to get going. Um, it was a, another very strong year from a driver that, you know, you talked about the overall period, Kev, and Dixon has been a top, performer in IndyCar for that whole period um, in a way that Alonso, barring you know a couple of years when he was out of Formula One, has been as well. Interestingly, I, I think uh, that is a good point, uh, James, that top drivers do special things or special drivers do special things. And I remember saying this to a driver uh, who was disgruntled with his uh, uh, placing in the top 50 and that a certain other driver was ahead of him. Uh, and I said, well, look at this. Actually, it was it was Kobayashi uh, who was being moaned about. Uh, and I said, yeah, but just look at some of his pole laps. And it, it was a it was a year he was on pole at the Mon. Uh, I think it was his record year, you know, his record breaking pole there. And I said, yeah, special drivers do special things. Yeah, absolutely. That will come up a few times, I think, uh, in the course of this list. So I'm going to throw to Hayden now because after... So we've got our top three now. We've talked about... We've got Verstappen, Pelou and Norris. In at four, ahead of Alonso and Hamilton. So effectively rounding out our, our top six, if you like. In at four is someone who was third last year, but has fallen a spot. So why has uh, now double world rally champion Kalirov and Pera fallen one slot, Hayden, do you think? I think... Again, like we said, I said earlier, he was one of those that were being disargued um, for second place behind Verstappen, and that is obviously why he's in this, still in the, in the high high spots overall. But compared to his first title when he's in last year, um, he didn't have, as we said earlier, those magic moments, those many 
sort of as many sparkle moments. Incredibly consistent, very rarely uh, put a wheel wrong um, throughout the season and a uh, richly deserved championship. There's no, there's no argument about that. But yeah, he, he lacked those superstar performances, um, which we came to expect of him, I guess, so young and so soon. Um, so that's sort of, I guess, why the argument of, of him not being able to equal his previous year's position I guess we should sort of qualify that point by saying that he did have the most stage wins. Um, He had 72 stage wins, which was two more than than last year and and 32 more than their next best total, which was Thierry Neuville. Um, And so again, in the WRC world, we've got Robin Perra clearly ahead of the next best WRC driver because, you know, as Hayden mentioned, his, his only... Um, you know, non-score of the year was was in Finland where he crashed. Um, he won three races. He won 13 stages in a row in Estonia. So, you know, he was, again, a, a fantastic season. But you look back at the first four rallies and he only had one podium. So, you know, you wonder whether to some degree there was a, a differing approach from, from Robin Perra this year of, you know, it's always different isn't it when you're defending a title versus being the the pretender going for it so um there were there were flashes of absolutely you know fantastic moments and he was clearly again the best wrc driver but you know the the question is by how much and we also you know robin perra last year as the youngest ever world champion you also have to judge based on expectations don't you to a to a certain degree yeah, and I think I, I I kind of part of me wanted to really argue him a bit further down the list, not be as high as four, partly because you know Sebastian Ogier, who's in at thirty with his part time season, he won the same number of events, and actually with a bit more luck, he could have won five. He could have been five three ahead of Rovanperä. Okay, he had the better uh, road conditions because he was doing a part-time season which is something that Rovan Perra obviously likes so much he's going to have a part-time season at the age of 23 next year so yeah not quite sure how we feel about a double world champion deciding to do a half season the following year but uh, we can talk that probably means he won't be in the top 50 next year if he does he'll be a lot further down um, but yeah so I bet it's quite difficult to argue anyone up above him I think so he kind of yeah he, he kind of and, and that's the main before. issue we've had with this, yeah. in, with this entire list particularly the, sh- the sharp end outside of a snapping is yeah so directly below him is Alonso but do you uh, do you rank a driver who didn't win a race this year granted he outperformed uh, any expectations on in terms of the team and uh, pecking order process but he can't outrank a, a world champion surely who who no. won rallies who won the top of his class by a long way Having said all that, of course, and this is where I'm going to throw it to Gary now, in at seven, our leading sports car driver did not win the championship. That's true. <laughs> or and even come close. No, he didn't win Le Mans. So he didn't win the big one. He didn't win the championship. Uh, 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 number seven is Antonio Fuaco. Now, I must admit, I was a bit surprised when he proved, I think he stuck it on pole at Sebring, didn't he? Yeah, and I was a, for the new Ferrari for Yeah. Exactly, and I was rather surprised. But he continued, and Marcus Simmons, our uh, our junior single seater and British touring car guru, did point out I just hadn't been paying sufficient attention when he was uh, in the lower ranks, and that actually he knew that Fuaco was going to be good anyway. So come on, then, Gary. Why is he, despite not having won anything basically this year, why is he your your pick of let's face it, a very strong bunch of hypercar drivers this year? Well, I'm going to swear because he was bloody fast. You know, <laughs> he was bloody fast over one lap. 
you know, we saw that that surprise poll at Sebring, which none of us were expecting. Then he did it again at um, Le Mans at the front of a, a, a Ferrari block out of the front row where he pipped uh, Pierre Guidi by seven tenths, which, you know, OK, it's Le Mans, it's eight and a half miles, but that's still a significant margin. But more than that, more than that, it's his race pace. And there were times when he really was a step above the other people, the other five drivers across the two two Ferrari Le Mans hypercars. Um, Le Mans, he was something, you know, I think if you do, I mean, obviously the metrics, there are different metrics, but if I, I would think on the 75 lap fastest laps, he was something like six tenths faster than the next best Ferrari driver. Well, let's qualify that slightly because his car that he's, he shared with Nicholas Nielsen and Miguel Molina was coming back from a problem. It had, they had, they lost however many laps in the night when they had to change the uh, hybrid system radiator because it had a stone go through it. So they were on the comeback. And okay, you're saying, well, clearly the lead car, the 51 car, the Collado Giovinazzi Piguidi car was pushing because it was in a dogfight with Toyota. But I think there's something slightly different there. But even so, Fuoco was amazing at Le Mans. And there were other races where I looked at it and thought, hang on, he is going significantly quicker than his teammates. I think Fuji was one, a a race where Ferrari weren't really in the game. But I was thinking, blimey, if they had three Fuocos, maybe they would have been in the game. Yeah, so outstanding within his team. And would you say the same about... Uh, Brendan Hartley, who's your next the next sports car driver in at 16. So there's quite a big gap there, isn't there, between uh, Fuoco and Hartley? So was he as was he presumably wasn't quite as special at Toyota as Fuoco was at Ferrari? No, because we got we've got I'm gonna yeah we got Kobayashi at 22, haven't we? So not far behind. And there was you know they were the sort of uh, quickest guys in their two cars, uh, and I just. Hartley, yeah, Hartley was mega at Le Mans. Uh, obviously, Kobayashi didn't really have the chance to uh, be mega at Le Mans because he was clouted up the rear at uh, at Turch Rouge in the night and the car car retired. Uh, just Hartley sort of shaded it for me. You know, I think just consistently over the season, he was just, he was the top um, Toyota driver. Uh, but there wasn't that margin between them that there was sometimes, quite often actually, between Fuoco and the other the other Ferrari drivers. Um, so, yeah, so that sort of explains probably why Fuoco is so high up, uh, and why our why James Collado, our next Ferrari driver, is down in thirty third place, which is quite a big gap and. I'm not going to say I'm particularly happy with that gap, but yeah, yeah, I just, yeah, I just thought Fuoco was sensational. And, you know, and and I think probably with his high position, we're taking into this, uh, taking into consideration that, yes, he's a prototype rookie. Okay, so was Collado because obviously he's doing GTs, but he's, he's at a much earlier stage of his sports car career, isn't he? Uh, and... And, you know, we knew he was good in GT cars. He came into the GTE Pro lineup last year and was, uh, yeah, 
by the end of the season was the quickest driver. So we knew he was good. But yeah, I think we're 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 saying I think I think it's the surprise factor uh, that has sort of pushed him up the order. Yeah, that's probably fair. Actually, on the surprise factor, before we move off uh, sports car racing for a little, we'll, we'll come back uh, later on the list. Were you surprised that, of the the Porsche drivers that came out on top this year? I, I uh, again, may, maybe maybe Marxism would accuse me of not paying sufficient attention, but are you surprised by the the, the guys that starred both in IMSA and WEC for Porsche this year? Well, the standout drivers across the two uh, arms of the Porsche Penske Motorsport squad were Lawrence Van Tor, who we've got in at 19. Uh, so he's in the WEC squad. Uh, and we've got Matt Campbell from the IMSA squad at number 25. I'm, I'm a bit of, a bit more qualified to talk about Van Tor in WEC because that's my championship. Yeah, he was absolutely outstanding. Uh, you know, he, he had amazing consistency uh yeah and he he was able to do some cheeky little things like you know taking the lead at the first corner at fuji which was so important in them sort of having their best performance of the year in WEC, where they led the race for four hours um yeah and i and yeah and at le mans he was the quickest porsche driver and i think that's significant because le mans is a race you know it's a longer race uh, there's sort of less strategic variations on the tyres. Everyone is pretty much doing the same thing on tyres within a team, you know, most likely triple triple stints. So I think you do get a very good uh, picture of who's quickest from from Le Mans. And he was the quickest uh, Porsche driver, not, not, not by a load, actually, to be fair, but he, he was quickest. And, and again, we're qualifying this because he's not, he wasn't a prototype guy. He'd, he'd, he'd raced a prototype, I think, three times before this year. You know, he was a GT specialist who'd, who'd pretty much done it all across two sort of uh, realms of GT racing. That's GT3 when he was with Audi and then GTE uh, or GTLM in IMSA, as it as it was called, uh, with with Porsche, and uh, yeah, and it, it, it's quite interesting that a lot of GT drivers really adapted to these new breed of uh, prototypes, uh, perhaps better than uh, some sort of prototype experts. And 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 I'm looking at say Andre Lotterer, who was in in the uh, number six Porsche in WEC with Van Tor and, and Kevin Estra. Uh, and, you know, let's not forget that these, uh, the Le Mans hype cars and the LMDH cars are heavier beasts than an LMP1 car. They're not a sort of live racing car, if you know what I mean. So, uh, it, you know, you, Van Tor said, well, a car's a car. You know, you've got a steering wheel ahead of you and some pedals down there and uh, four wheels on the track. If you can drive, you can drive. you just got to work out how to make it quick. But but there is a trend there. I, I think I agree with Lawrence on that, but there is a definite trend that we saw a lot of GT drivers making the most of their opportunities uh, in in the, the new uh, sort of dual category of top-line sports car racing, and, and Campbell is, uh, is, is an example of that as well. Yeah, it'd be interesting to see if that carries on its next year. I mean, as we predicted last year and the year before, we have got more sports car drivers into the list, higher up the list, and I'm sure that will continue all the time that this sort of hypercar 
era gathers momentum but that we've actually got one category left that's represented in the in the top 10 so uh, in at 8 and 9 between Fuaco and Albon we've got uh, two formula e drivers and there's another third uh, formula e driver in the top 20 so I'm going to throw this to to you Hayden I, I think it was fairly clear this year that there were three formula e drivers that were quite a long way ahead of the rest and they all make the top 20 well ahead of the next um do you think that's do you think that's a fair reading of it do you want to oh, run yeah. through the order that we've got? 100%. So, yes, Nick, Nick Cassidy is the top Formula E driver in this list at eighth, just ahead of uh, Jake Dennis in ninth. And then Mitch Evans uh, completes that trio in 17th place overall. This is controversial, is it not? <laughs> well, it does. And it does, uh, to be fair, uh, undo what I said earlier about with Rob Ampera and Alonso and the whole situation of that, of, uh, yeah, putting, putting Cassidy ahead. Uh, I think... Bad luck uh, hit him multiple times in multiple I mean, literally ways. in Rome. Yes, <laughs> uh, with <laughs> Evans. And yeah, you, you you sort of have to factor that into his his season. And, and indeed, like he put out some absolute stellar performances throughout the season. That's not to take anything away from, from Dennis. I, I don't think that's not fair on, on him. But that's why they're, they're so closely um, put together. But yeah, you, you do have to feel uh, for Cassidy a little bit on on how the championship panned out and, and how he sort of just, just missed out to, to Dennis. Yeah, I think he still had a chance of the title in London, didn't he, when he had a clash with his teammate that broke his front wing and that's the sort of thing that you really just can't legislate for. Um, I, I did feel bad for him about that, but it was you know how he responded the next day that I think was quite key in, in Stefan Mackley, our Formula E correspondent's decision to rank Cassidy above Dennis in that, you know, tricky conditions for the final race. Um, of course, amplified even more by the fact that the XL arena circuit is partly indoor, partly outdoor. So part of the track was wet, part of it was dry and Cassidy just smashed the field, you know, you could, you could have almost anticipated that he had come back the next day, you know, somewhat, you know, downbeat, but not a bit of it. So, uh, nice. yeah, a, a fantastic performance, and and I think that was quite key in, in Stefan putting. Cassidy above the champion Jake Dennis, and, and I think we should point out as well that both Nick Cassidy and Mitch Evans both won four races to, to Jake, yeah. Jen's, Jake Dennis's two, uh, and I'd put Cassidy ahead of Evans almost entirely down to Rome because uh, that was something that hit both their championships, and it was it was Mitch's fault unfortunately. Uh, and as you, as uh, as James has said, there Nick didn't have any help from his teammate whatsoever at the last round. So Cassidy, I think, could probably feel a bit more hard done by. But on in Dennis's favour, of course, he had the Porsche powertrain, which was not as strong as the Jaguar for probably what two thirds of the season, yeah. and so he just kept. I mean, the the number, the sequence of podiums um, that he scored seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven podiums in the season in Formula E is absolutely incredible. So he was a worthy champion. Stefan Mackley decided to put Nick just ahead in his top ten, and we wanted to reflect how close they were by putting them eight and nine, you know, really close together in uh, in our top fifty. So yeah, I think uh, I think that's uh, that's fair enough. So so, so James, I'm going to go back to you to two what you might regard as well not esoteric perhaps that's a bit unfair but two particular regions of the world are represented at 11 and 12 with with japan and and nascar so yeah talk us through uh, 11 and 12 in the list and then we'll perhaps dot a little bit further through so at number 11 we've got Ritomo miyata who is the champion of super formula and super gt um and really you can't do much better than that if you're racing in the japanese arena um, he's a he's a protege of Toyota, 
and he'll be racing in Europe next year in the European Le Mans series and in Formula 2. There's not that many drivers that have won both championships in the same year, and he's comfortably the youngest of those that have done so. He had pretty stern opposition this year in the form of Liam Lawson coming in with Team Mugen alongside the reigning double champion Tomoko Nigiri. Um, and he, you know, he, he emerged as a race winner and just sort of picked up from there really for, for the Toms team. And in Super GT, he was partnered with Shode Saboy and together they put together one of the most dominant seasons in, in recent history in that championship, which is you know, famously one that often goes to um, the final race. Um, and our Japanese correspondent, Jamie Klein, pointed out that he um, had a really significant contribution to a victory um, in Autopolis with a, a charging drive there. So Miata, a new entry and also a new entry at number 12 um, from the world of NASCAR, who, um, a bit like in Formula E, we've got our um, our champion behind um, the driver that the correspondent picked out as the, the strongest performer, which was William Byron in the NASCAR Cup Series. He's a, he's a Hendrick Motorsports driver. He won six races this year, which was the most of anyone all season. Um, Hendrick hasn't really had a shortage of top-line contenders to, to choose from in recent years. They've had uh, you know, Chase Elliott's won a title for, for Hendrick, and so um, has Kyle Larson. Um, Elliott, of course, this year had an injury that, that sort of set his season back, and he wasn't able to win a race before the cutoff, so he didn't make the chase. Um, and the chase went down to... Um, I still call it the chase. It's called the playoffs now, isn't it? That's me showing uh, some age. Um, and at the final race, it, it went down to um, the two Hendrick drivers, which was Myron and, and Larson, together with the Joe Gibbs racing Toyota of Christopher Bell, who crashed out early, had a, um, a brake problem, which put him in the wall in Phoenix. And the the, the other contender was Ryan Blaney from Team Penske. Um, and he put together, you know, one of those, you know, classic things in NASCAR, which is timing your victories right. Um, and he, you know, really emerged in um, the playoffs with, you know, timely victories. Martinsville was the, the key win that got him into the, um, the championship for final race. And actually in, you know, the, the all-important decider, it's quite unusual in NASCAR that it's won by a driver who isn't fighting for the championship. Ross Chastain of um, top 50 fame from last year um, actually won that race and the title came down to a battle for second place between um, Larson and Ryan Blaney. And it was Blaney who came out on top. But Jim Utter, who's our you know NASCAR correspondent, you know, points out that, you know, across the season, Byron was the, you know, the, 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 the strongest driver um, and, you know, the, the, when you look at where those wins happened, you know, short tracks, intermediate ovals, super speedways, and of course he won on the road course at Watkins Glen. So he was a, a really versatile presence. Um, and this was his first appearance in the championship four. So, um, you know, in theory, he's a, he's a driver that's only going to get better. And although he finished third in the final standings, um, put together a, a, a very strong campaign that, you know, Jim acknowledged by putting him top of the NASCAR contingent here with um, we've got Ryan Blaney at 23 and we've got Kyle Larson in the list as well um, at 38. Yeah, I think it's very difficult, isn't it, to rate the 
Super GT, Super Formula, NASCAR drivers, because we know that, well, I mean, they're destination championships. Super Formula is kind of a junior category and a destination championship, isn't it? They're destination championships that are very competitive. It doesn't always translate when those drivers go elsewhere. So it's, yeah, it's difficult. But given the number of wins uh, that Byron got and winning, we had to winning two championships. I think that's why they're up so high knocking on the door. Uh, of the of the top ten, you know the Miata thing is is really interesting, isn't it? And and I'm interested in him because he's named after a Fiat, and I like Fiats. His dad was. A he big probably fan. isn't. <laughs> oh, he is. He is. Genuinely, really, he is. That's named, amazing. By named after the Ritmo, uh, which we called over in the UK the Strada. Uh, his dad's a big Fiat fan, and they've sort of uh, put the extra O in to make it pronounceable in uh, in. Um, in that is spectacular, uh, but you know he's he's being groomed by by uh, Toyota. You know he's he's been part of their setup for uh, for a while. He's also reserve driver for the for the WEC next year. They they're bringing him to Europe. You know we uh, the original plan that he was going to do WEC in the Lexus. You know sister brand of Toyota in the ASP uh, team, but now suddenly they pushed him off, or I think. He pushed for it uh, off into Formula Two, which I, which which I think is is great because clearly he's a mega driver, and we we can you know see in front of us in Formula Two uh, what he can do and if he can go further. But I don't understand the logic for for Toyota actually in in putting him in F two with Carlin because what does a year what does your first year of F two prepare you for? Well, your second year of F two. And when then your second year prepares you for your first, you know, do you know what do you know what I mean? So you know Toyota, who are not in Formula One, of course. What are they? What they want him to be part of the WEC squad, but they put him in F two. Well, clearly it'd be better for him to do to do WEC, and he's doing a um, an LMP two program in ELMS. There's no clashes uh, between ELMS and WEC, so he could do those two things. So. Yes, I think it's great that we're going to see him in F2 next year, but I, I don't understand the logic on uh, Toyota's part there. But clearly, I'm, you know, he's, he's, the boy's a bit good, isn't he? Yeah, I wonder if it's a case of try and go up as far up the single-seater ladder as you can and then do other things because it tends to prepare you. But if you've done Super Formula, I'm not really sure whether F2 is, well, is necessary, that, that, so I do know what you exactly mean. That's <laughs> exactly my point, you yeah. know. That is yeah. exactly my point. Yeah, well, it'll be interesting to see how he how he gets on. I mean, uh, if he if he does put well in both, he could be another feature on this list next year. Um, so, so that'd be good. But right, so earlier on we talked about special drivers doing special things, and in at number twenty is Shane Van Gisbergen. Now he lost the uh, Supercast Championship to Brody Kostecki in the sort of controversial Gen 3 switch, different teams getting on top of it in different ways, Ford not really being in the hunt most of the time. He also won Bathurst, but Hayden... He's not actually at 20 for any of those reasons, is he? He produced a special moment uh, in a completely different championship. Yes, uh, Shane Van Gisbon uh, winning on debut in NASCAR on the streets of Chicago. I think first since 1963. Johnny Rutherford were, was the first last driver to win uh, on, on debut in the, in the Cup Series. And quite an incredible um, situation to come about. It was... It was always mega to see this year, uh, and has sort of been an encouragement to have the the wild car drivers. Let's let's call them. You've had, yeah, Button for example, and quite a few others have have starred and turned up and seen how they've gone. But obviously not, but given they're fighting against the regulars uh, who who know the the tracks, know know the cars and everything, uh, you wouldn't expect them to, yeah, 
be at the top end of everything. But Van Gisman, unbelievable performance. And obviously he's switching there full-time full time next year. So yeah, it's one of those where I think through a combination of his uh, exploits this year, he was always always guaranteed a, a spot in this top 50. But that, that performance um, really sort of elevated him to due the 20th, yeah. Yeah, if it, if it wasn't for Ferrari winning the centenary version of of Le Mans, uh, that would have been my um, highlight of the year. I think I've been a big fan of Van Gisbergen. I think he's mega, and to, to turn up and do that was, yeah, was 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 pretty cool. To be honest, uh, I'm, I'm almost disappointed that he's moving across full time because he's then he's he's only going to get a worse percent rate. Like finish one out of one, brilliant, and go and do something else. <laughs> do the Scott McLaughlin thing and go and do IndyCar or something. But uh, yeah, I'm sure we'll see him uh, appearing again in future. He'd already proved himself to be an all-rounder because I watched some of his races when he won the uh, Blancpain uh, GT Endurance Championship back in 15, I think, with uh, Garage 55 and McLaren. And, and I, you know, he, I remember at Silverstone, he was, he was mega. Uh, and, but the, the thing about that, he won the championship with uh, Rob Bell and Com Lodiger, I think. And uh, he was absent for the last race. He was however many thousand miles away doing uh, his supercar uh, race at Sandown. They were leading the championship going into the race. They didn't score any points, but no one else scored enough points to overhaul them. So he won the championship, even though he was 8,000 miles away, which which I always like that story. But But my point really is that, yeah, should we be surprised that he made the transition from V8s to NASCAR and did a, such an amazing thing where he's already shown himself to be a real versatile talent? Yeah, he's one of the outstanding drivers outside of F, of F well, sort of the mainstream, if you like, isn't he? I think he's just brilliant in whatever you put him in. So, yeah, look forward to seeing how he does develop. I mean, actually, that's quite a nice segue into into GTs. And you know, GT3, I think you could argue, is the most successful category now in the history of motorsport almost. It's kind of got as many professional drivers as Super Touring, but hasn't eaten itself financially yet. And what, we're 2006, it started. So we're, we're heading towards 20 years of GT3, aren't we? And it's now getting more important because it's effectively the base of the GT category. At, at Le Mans, so I'm sure we'll be talking about it for years to come. But we've it was very difficult because there are so many good professional drivers in GT3 to just pick out. Well, we've ended up picking out three. So we've got Raphael Marchiello and Jules Gounon, two Mercedes drivers at 34 and 35. And then we've got DTM champion with uh, uh, Porsche, Thomas Praining. So, James, we had a long debate, didn't we, about Marchiello versus Gounon. How did we end up with it that way around? It's, it's a debate that's been running for for a year, actually, hasn't it? Yes. I mean, really, you could argue this either way. Um, you know, both incredibly strong drivers, teammates, of course, in GT World Challenge Endurance, um, winning that title. Um, they didn't win the Spa 24 Hours again. Um, that was claimed by the Rover BMW, but they finished second in a, you know, a scenario where that was probably the best outcome that a Mercedes could could get given the BOP changes that, that went on year on year. Both you could point to having, you know, absolutely standout moments. Gunon won his third Bathurst twelve hours, um, with a you know, a remarkable, you know, stat because it was a, a, a pro am lineup. You know, they had Kenny Habul who was the, you know, bronze driver who was, you know, paying for the Sun Energy car to go racing and you know on on paper that had no right to beat the group m mercedes that marcello was sharing with michael grenier and mauro engel um 
but they, you know, played around with the strategy, um, took advantage of a, I think it was a transponder issue on the, uh, on the Group M car that sort of put them back a little bit. And then, um, you know, Gunon put up some fantastic defense on old tires that, you know, suckered Engel into going for a, you know, maybe a 50 50 move that wasn't quite on. He turned around. Um, going on and had to serve a penalty for it and he went on to beat Matt Campbell who we you know mentioned earlier um, in the context of his IMSA win he also finished second in the Bathurst 12 hour um, in, in British GT clearly this is not the um, you know the, the pinnacle of, of GT racing but I think it's worth mentioning that um, Gunon did out qualify Marcello in the races that they had together 3-2 which included lowering his Alton Park lap record um, which yeah uh, a, a proper driver circuit, but then so too is Macau, where um, Gunon hadn't actually been before. Marcello, of course, has been multiple times and won the last iteration of the FAA GT World Cup in 2019, and he's raced there in subsequent seasons when it hasn't had that um, FIA status. Um, and Marcello, you know, blew everyone out of the water on his swan song for Mercedes. Um, Gunon also had, you know, some great moments in. Uh, in IMSA, together with Danny and Cadella, um, they won more races than the championship winning pair in the uh, GTD Pro class, which was Jack Hawksworth and Ben Barnico. We've got Hawksworth on the list as well um, at number 46. Um, and in his second program, Marcello was paired with Timo Bogoslavski in um, GT World Challenge Sprint and, you know, delivered more of the customary pole positions that you'd expect to see. Um, some some fantastic charging drives that stood out, included winning at Hockenheim with some key overtakes on the Audis. Um, he also had the pole at, at the Nürburgring 24 hours as well. So two absolutely fantastic drivers that, frankly, you could have put either way, really. Um, and both of them edge out Prining, who um, switched from the single car Bernhard run um Porsche team to the Manti EMA effort which was now a two-car team with Dennis Olsen um and Preening was absolutely fantastic this year we've, we've known that he was quick he, he showed that last year um in becoming the first Porsche driver ever to win in in the DTM um but he was you know remarkably consistent as well um and his closest challenger Mirko Bortolotti um couldn't quite go the distance and Proning sort of secured the title in quite emphatic fashion by winning both of the last two races at Hockenheim um, and got himself into a an LMDH um, Porsche 963 for the Bahrain rookie test as well, which maybe is an indication of um, where his future may lie. Um, yeah, a, a strong year for, for GT3 racing. Um, Hawksworth as well um, in at 46 was, you know, the benchmark driver in, in qualifying, um, got four pole positions this year. Um, he's a stalwart of that, that Lexus program. And, you know, why you could point to the fact that the GTD Pro class in IMSA didn't have a hugely um, stacked grid. Equally, what cars were there were very strong, um, you know, a consistent presence all the way through. And, you know, they, I think, only had two races all season where they weren't on the podium. I mean, the only thing I'd like, really like to add to that is, uh, you know, obviously the Gunon Marciello or Marciello Gunon sort of, you know, we've we've put them next to each other in the, in the top uh, fifty because we think they're really close. You know, I'm gonna I'm gonna say for Gunon, anyone who's quick around Orton Park, 
uh, gets my vote. Which is also a brilliant segue into the next part, because before we get on to one of the more fun or debatable parts of the list, which is who we would like to put in and take out, uh, I'm just going to run through a few names I think we should flag up rather than going through everyone. So at 29 was Liam Lawson, obviously Super Formula runner-up, and he you know, did a pretty good job. I think everyone agrees with his you know, his handful of races for AlphaTauri after Daniel Ricciardo uh, was injured. Ash Sutton in at 36, which is his fourth British touring car title. He's become the first person to win it in a front and rear-wheel drive car. And it's his highest placing uh, based on the fact that it was a really you know, a dominant campaign in what is normally a close championship. So he's in at 36 after 12 wins. Our Formula 2, we, we try and pick uh, pick a best representative from F2 and F3. In F2, it's not the champion table chair. It's Frederick Vesti, who was pretty bit unlucky to win it. Megan White put him at... Uh, uh, number one in the in the top uh, F3, F2 drivers, uh, and the top F3 driver was rookie champion Gabriel Bortoletto. Um, so I think they deserved a bit of a mention. So now the fun bit. Can I just say something about Ash Sutton? Because I think, you know, your point there about front-wheel drive, rear-wheel drive, you know, this year front-wheel drive, previously uh, rear drive, I think, in the Affinity and the, the Subaru. And that's really significant for me. And, and I say that as a person who I will go to my grave saying that Laurent Aiello is the best touring car driver ever because of what he did in different arenas and in different formats of cars. So forget about your Revaliers and your Beelers who, who won a lot of championships, but always with, with uh, one manufacturer. Uh, Aiello did it, you know, uh, DTM with Nissan France, sorry, D- sorry, DTM with Audi, BTCC with Nissan, Peugeot, uh, in France, uh, you know, now Ash Sutton's done it with different manufacturers and different teams, and I think that's really, really significant. And uh, forget about the records; I think that's just as significant in 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 us saying yes, he should be in this list in a, a decent position, and yes, he is bloody talented. Yeah, ahead of ahead of next season's British Touring Car Championship, we are going to attempt to do a bit of a series of top tens. One of which will be the top ten British Touring Car drivers. Uh, of all time uh, and I would suggest that Sutton has already done enough to be in that list uh, even if he retired tomorrow so uh, I just haven't decided where yet so stay tuned for that one okay so Hayden we're at the fun part of the list where uh, we get to argue who should have been in that isn't and if I may be so bold to ask you uh, who would you take out if that's not too harsh a question uh, so who, who's on the bubble that um, yeah the, the classic case of when someone complains oh you were 51st who's 51st on your list I think um, this one was dismissed at the time because we were formulating the list with championships still going going on, which isn't uncommon. And one of those was Formula 2. And as you've just alluded to there, uh, Theo Portier has missed out. Uh, and Whereas Vesti, not the champion, is on it. I do, yes, it's a tricky one to argue into it, but I do feel he was yeah on definitely within that contingent of just missing out. Uh, but the problem was, who, who would I argue to take out of the list to put him in now that is the the really tricky bit that we that we went on and on ultimately that's why he's not there but maybe you could slip him in for um a Thierry Neuville maybe is I think was one of the candidates that was it was tricky but we are talking yeah not much in here but yeah Pochier had 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 the season that did enough in terms of winning the title what what one win to it but consistency by and large uh, delivered the championship for for him, and now we have that curious thing of um, sort of circling back to what you said earlier of 
he's off to Super Formula. Uh, Hermitoma's off to Formula Two. Yeah. So <laughs> I mean, re- champions over. Re- It'd be interesting to see how both get on in their respective uh, crossovers. No. Um, I think that'd be a fascinating watch for no. for next. So, year. which so of that- the two drivers is stepping up and who's stepping down? They're stepping, both stepping sideways. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, regular regular uh, listeners will know I'm not a huge fan of consistency and scoring points. Surely the point of a race is to win it. So I, I, I'm uh, given how long he's been in F2 level, I think Porsche should have absolutely smashed it this year. So I'm not overly upset not to see him in the in the 50. But uh, yeah, definitely worth the mentioning because winning the F2 championship, no matter how many years you've been doing it, is still a hard thing to do. And then uh, your point goes back to my point about what does a year of F2 do mm. for uh, Miata? It prepares him for year two, you know. Yeah. <laughs> uh, what about you, James? What, uh, what about, I mean, obviously we, we had the final discussion about putting the list together, but who were you most miffed that didn't make it in? There are a few drivers that I sort of thought had a had a good shout. I mean, um, Louis Delatraz was one who um, won the World Endurance Championship P2 title. Um, also had a, a a couple of standout drives in the European Le Mans series when he was in a, a pro am car run by TF Sport, and he won outright in Barcelona with a sort of a case of "all right, I'll do it myself" sort of drive, where he just you know, charged through the pack in, in the later stages. Um, another driver who I thought also may stand an outside chance um, was Pato Award, who actually finished ahead of Joseph Newgarden in the IndyCar standings. Um, Joey Barnes, I know, is one who, you know, lobbied heavily for Award to make it. Ultimately, you know, we sort of thought he made a couple of mistakes that counted against him and, um Obviously, there's a lot of drivers in here who didn't win a race in in their respective championships. We've got Alonso in at you know P5 and and Norris in at P3, um, but not winning a race did count against Award there. And another was Norbert Mikulitz, who won the um, inaugural TCR World Tour, which is sort of a repackaged version of the World uh, Touring Car Cup Championship. Um, and yeah, it- there was there was a a moment where we were discussing should he be the highest Hyundai driver in the list instead of Thierry Neuville but in the end um, Tom Howard won out by pointing out that you know his improvement um, year on year on some of the gravel rallies was was really notable and although Neuville did make a, a few quite costly mistakes he did win um, a couple of races yeah, a couple of rallies. A couple me, of rallies. Yeah, I must admit, uh, slip and uh, uh, was the was the best non Toyota in the WRC this year as well. Uh, I must admit, he'd be the one I think I would lose. Sorry, Thierry. I know, but I just he does the same thing every year. Finishes second or third, doesn't he? <laughs> Whereas Michelitz has actually gone out and won his championship. So, uh, yeah, I take that. I mean, Tanak should have been the should have been the top non Toyota driver, shouldn't he? And he actually is in our list in WRC. Uh, but obviously, as uh, Malcolm Wilson actually said, the also awards, you know, they weren't, weren't reliable enough, uh, really. But um, yeah, so Gary, what uh, what thoughts yeah, have I mean, you got? It, James's point about Louis Delatraz, who, you know, was one of the top uh, LMP2 drivers. And LMP2 isn't very well represented on our list. Uh, we've got Philippe Albuquerque in at 27 and Tom Blomqvist in at number 32, who both had dual programs. Their primary program... Uh, over in IMSA, uh, both driving for Acura, but they also both did LMP2 programs uh, in WEC. Uh, now LMP2, it's it's there were, I think, because there were so many good drivers, perhaps there wasn't a standout. But Albuquerque, uh, 
uh, is probably high up that list as he as as high up as he is because he was very very good in in WEC even though he didn't win a race they did he did get a maximum points I think when uh, the Jota car won at Sebring but wasn't registered for points because it was running instead of uh, their 963 LMDH before that that arrived uh, but Goodyear did something very interesting Goodyear uh is the sole tyre supplier of LMP2 in WEC. And they came up with something which they called the Wingfoot Award. And Wingfoot is that sort of funny Goodyear badge with a foot and a wing. Uh, and um, the Wingfoot Award was based on the fastest double stint at each race. And he came out top in the sort of little mini championship that they did, even though... He only did five of the seven races because he missed a couple because, as I said, Imsel with uh, uh, WTR Andretti was his uh, primary program. That's significant for me because I think there's no better way to judge a driver's pace than his speed over uh, a stint on a set of tyres. That is the ultimate uh, uh, judgment you can make on on someone's pace so that's that's why uh albuquerque is so high up P- perhaps a little too high given that he you know he he wasn't winning races this year uh but yeah but <laughs> perhaps he is too high and you know some people say blongfist is too low but then his daytona victory with mayor shank uh, of course, was tainted by the tyre pressure scandal when they were found to be running outside of the uh, prescriptions on the tyre pressures, which because the, the sensors or, or the software or whatever within them had been fiddled with. So that's slightly tainted. But yeah, I think LMP2 is underrepresented, but there is a reason for that. And it's almost that there there aren't isn't a standout driver. I think it's also because of hypercar, isn't it? Because you'd, you'd struggle to put lots of LMP2 drivers in when you've got you know, a burgeoning hypercar class at the top of the tree. Um, but it's a very good point about stints, actually. We see that at the, um, the Aston Martin Autosport BRDT uh, Young Driver of the Year Award. For, that quite often, the finalists can match the benchmark drivers. You know, Johnny Adam, for example, often does the GT3 running for us, uh, and the young drivers can get down to the lap time when the tyres are fresh, but over a longer run, they f- tend to fall further and further behind the pro that just can manage the tyre and just do the lap time, yeah, whatever the conditions, whatever the tyres are doing. So because, I think that is a good point. But but for them, it's a new skill, isn't it? Exactly, like, yeah. That, that they will learn if, if, you know, as they go up the ladder or as they move sideways or whatever. So are there any other drivers before we before I wrap it up are there any drivers that we want to that we want to mention that uh, should have should have got in there I I'd, I'd like to, I'd like to one to mention one who is in there and that's Sebastian Bourdais because and I want to focus on mm. Le Mans because he came back um to Le Mans well, no, he didn't come back because he's obviously been a regular there with the Ford GT and then he was there in an LMP2 car vector last year but he was absolutely amazing in the uh, Ganassi uh, Cadillac this year and he, he showed race winning pace in that car you know uh, they had a messy race they had a number of incidents they had a penalty again for uh, tyre pressure uh, issues um, but you know the pace he was able to do was you know pretty much not far off 
Toyota and Ferrari. And given that they were only two laps down, they had a penalty, they had you know some some dings and knocks it sort of suggested to me that perhaps Cadillac could have been in the mix at Le Mans and rather than having that uh, grandstand two manufacturer two car two manufacturer fight at the end we could have potentially had a, a third manufacturer in there so uh, so yeah I just thought Bourdais who's you know not in his first flush of youth and you know don't forget that he hasn't this was his first time that he was in the top class at Le Mans since the end of the old Peugeot programme, the LMP1 programme in 2011. And he's sort of, and he's the son of Le Mans. He was born at Turt Rouge. There's a big um, um, uh, uh, maternity hospital there. Uh, so he really is Le Mans born and bred. And he sort of suggested that, you know, now as he gets towards his mid 40s, that yes, perhaps he could actually win that his home race. I don't think he's been in the list since 2011 as oh, well. Wow. So re-entry for, you know, after 12 years, yeah. which uh, I think that, I'm not sure if that's a record, but uh, it's got to be, it's got to be a top contender. Um, well, before we find, I'll give everyone that's listened this far a little bit of a bonus, and I'm sure the guys will want to hear it as well. Uh, the totals over the, over the 22 editions of the top 50, uh, I'll give you just the top 10, uh, as they stand at the moment. And I think some of these will change uh, probably next year. Perhaps we should do a separate podcast on the races of the century, drivers of the century. So Fernando Alonso is just four points ahead of Lewis Hamilton. If I tell you, they've got 894 and 890 points. I mentioned that earlier. Scott Dixon at three, the top non-F1 driver. Sebastian Vettel, Sebastian Loeb and Sebastian Auger, three Sebs, <laughs> four, five and six. Then it's Jensen Button, Kimi Raikkonen, Mark Webber, and then number 10 at the moment, who has just, uh, he's overtaken Nico Rosberg into 10th overall, Max Verstappen, who I think, given the way things are going at the moment, will be uh, rising up that list fairly quickly in the uh, in the years to come with our top 50. Um, but uh, thank you very much to uh, Gary Watkins, Hayden Cobb and James Newbold. And thank you for uh, listening. Hope you enjoy the top 50. I would make a request. Please don't take it too seriously. We take it very seriously putting it together, but we are also very aware that you could argue, as we've just done, many different drives into many different positions it's meant to be a way of highlighting different uh, star performances during the season so it doesn't mean if you if a driver isn't in this list it doesn't mean we don't think they were any good um, but if you have got some nice constructive feedback uh, drop us a line at autosport at autosport.com maybe if the same driver keeps coming up in all the emails maybe we'll do a feature on them in 2024 as a kind of a what we could call the Jules Gounon factor because I think that's pretty much what happened last year isn't it James thanks very much and uh, we'll see you in time for the next one Podcast Network.